everybody, and welcome to More of a Comment Than a Question. I'm your host, Paul Connor, and today on the podcast, I'm joined by a very special guest, uh, Nicole Barbero, who is a research scientist at WGU Labs. She's also an adjunct professor at Utah Valley University and um, heavily involved in communicating uh, evolutionary psychology. What's, what's your other role? Good. Hi. My, yeah. My technical title is communications officer for the human behavior and evolution society. So I also do that in addition to my other jobs. Excellent. So is that how you got Twitter famous? Um, actually, no, I think I joined Twitter before I was a communications officer for HBAS. So I started doing communications for them in 2019, but I was on the council for, starting in 2017 as a student representative when I was still in graduate school. But um, I think I had a big Twitter following before I started doing HBS communications, which I think helped me get that role, I think, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So 14,000 followers or something like that? Yeah, I think 14 and a half today. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. How did you build that up over time? Were you just sort of tweeting about scientific research and doing psychoms just naturally? Yeah, it was honestly uh, kind of chance lucky thing. I don't think I really am like, I don't think I had like a strategy behind my Twitter. Um, I started just kind of tweeting about articles I was reading. I was in grad school at the time. So of course I'm just reading a lot. So I would just tweet about science articles um, and just really enjoyed using Twitter. And it was honestly the key to getting a big, big Twitter following is having a lucky few posts that some big accounts pick up. And then you get like a mass of hundreds of followers or a thousand followers for a few big posts. So it is probably, I would say at this point, I've been on Twitter for four years. It's probably like 30 posts total that I've gotten probably like 90% of my followers from. So it's kind of pure luck in, in a lot of ways. So what would you say was your biggest uh, breakthrough retweet? Like what's the biggest account? It's, I think honestly, probably the accounts that I get a lot of traction from, um, are Paul Graham, who's that VC founder in, um, I don't, I don't for, actually know. <laughs> he runs Y Combinator. So he's like a big, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, he's, tech, you know, yeah. Guy. I don't know why he follows me. I still think yeah. it's my coolest Twitter follower. So if he's uh-huh. listening to this, thanks. <laughs> um, so he'll, he'll retweet some of my things. Um, and that helps a lot. And then like a lot of journalists and things like that. I've had a few journalists retweet some things. So it really is just a handful of art. Like I got the Atlantic retweeted something of like, you know, a post that I did of one of their stories and it was like a thousand followers in a day. So it really is just Damn. random luck of people coming across your tweets. So that's yeah. the key. That's the secret. Well, I'll keep trying to <laughs> and spend um, way too much time on there. I spend yeah, yeah. an embarrassing amount of time on there. So it's also a, another secret. Yeah. It's, it's kind of addictive. I, I, I've definitely not been tweeting much lately, but I just, I can't help lurking. Like it's such a, it's so, there's just so much drama every day on Twitter. It's um, addictive. Anyway, that's not what I wanted to talk to you about. The actual reason I invited you on the podcast um, is to talk about something that I have found myself thinking about quite a lot lately, which is um, attachment styles. Uh, I really want to know what is the state of the art uh, on this, what do psychologists know at this point, and what do we not know yet about attachment styles? Mainly because I've got this baby now, and since I've had the baby, I've sort of been thinking back through my, you know, undergrad psych education, um, and 
yeah, I, I've learned these little snippets about attachment style along the way. And I think in my own mind, I've built up some probably incorrect lay theories about attachment style and, and causal influences on them and causal effects of them. Uh, so I just kind of put out a tweet um, a couple of weeks ago, just asking, hey, does anybody know who studies this stuff? And your name came up and you were kind enough to agree to come on the podcast. So this is basically all for my benefit. So like listeners, you know, you can listen to it or not. I'm just doing this for me because this is something I'm really interested in and I want to learn more about. Uh, and I'll be very honest from the outset and say, I don't know very much. Um, so tell me about attachment styles. What do we, what do we know? And maybe let's start with um, infant attachment styles. Cause I believe like there's a, a, a difference. Uh, people sort of keep infant attachment styles a bit separate from adult attachment styles. So maybe let's just start with um, infant attachment styles. Um, tell me everything, <laughs> everything I need to know as a new parent about infant attachment styles. Um, go. <laughs> this is the hardest question. So, I mean, I will start at infant attachment styles, but attachment theory in psychology is probably one of like the largest unwieldy theories that we have in psychology, precisely because it's been around for a very long time. Um, and there's like this halo effect in psychology where older theories just kind of refuse to change that much. Um, so it, crosses all these little disciplinary buckets. So usually when I describe attachment theory or how I think of attachment theory, I think about it in kind of three buckets of research. So one, we have that traditional developmental psychology area, which is primarily focused on infant attachment, uh, infant attachment styles, how parents interact with children. Um, and then there's this social personality bucket, um, which is largely focused on adult attachment, self-report measures, um, of kind of looking at attachment style and really correlating the self-report measure with everything we can think to correlate attachment <laughs> measures with. Psych, right? Yes. <laughs> Classic psychology, uh, myself included. I, I also correlate measures with other measures. Um, and then we have kind of this third bucket, um, which is more of this evolutionary psychology approach to attachment, um, which there's a few different things that we can get into in that area. Um, but so those are just kind of how I think about it. And what's, what I think is an issue in attachment theory is the three buckets don't like to hang out with each other very much. Um, it's an issue that I run into in my papers a lot when I describe it is traditional developmentalists will be like, that's not what we mean by attachment, like pointing at the social personality psychologist and then social personality psychologists just kind of like, don't like what, you know, the developmental psychologists are doing because that doesn't apply here. Um, so, you know, there's some talking, but there's not, I feel like they've kind of evolved in their own little areas over mm -hmm. the decades, which is obviously presents issues when you're working in this area. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. I want to, I want to get into that, but so for somebody who, who's never heard of attachment style research, um, what, how would you explain the basic theory? Um, and I guess the, there's like four, four types with the infants, uh, and how, how we measure it and what people was, you know, like, so a, um, an advocate of the theory, what, what they think it all means and 
and so forth. Yeah, that's a great starting point. So, I mean, what you would typically learn about attachment theory is what you're going to find in like your intro psychology textbooks or in your lifespan development textbooks. So these are the two courses most college student ta- students take and pretty much every psychology major takes. Um, and then in these texts, they're basically going to describe the infant um, and developmental tradition of attachment. Um, so you have your strange situation procedure, which is, you know, you bring the mother and child into lab and basically you do go through a series of steps to see how the baby responds to strangers, how the baby responds when parents leave the room. So when, you know, their attachment figure, um, it's typically what we refer to the parents as, um, and then by going through this kind of series of steps, which is outlined in all these textbooks, and this was pioneered back in, you know, like the sixties and seventies, you know, really foundational research, you tend to get these four styles. So basically you observe the video interactions, um, and come up with these four attachment styles, which are pretty, standard across the field. So the, the one thing we do agree on is how we classify attachment, mm-hmm. even across um, these different buckets of research. So we typically have, you know, this secure attachment um, with infants and parents. And what this is, is typically, you know, uh, infants going to be a little wary of strangers after a while. This usually doesn't kick in until about a year or so mm-hmm. old. So mm-hmm. that's why with newborns, you can just pass them around to anyone and they're just like, okay, whatever, this is fine. (laughs) And then that'll quickly go away around a year old where they're like, absolutely not. I do not want to be passed around the room. Um, We can talk about that. But so we have secure attachment, which typically um, infants at least 12 months old, you know, are a little upset when their parent leaves, you know, they're not excited that their parent's gone. Um, But Let's go through the strange situation though, because I'm not totally, so my understanding uh, is... Uh, step one, baby's in the room with their parent. And it's, yeah, it's, so you it's, get habituated. Yeah. Uh, but then the parent leaves and then a stranger comes in the room, but they don't interact with the baby, right? Do, do they just stand there or do they actually try to interact with the baby? That's actually a good question. I'm not 100% sure if okay. they interact or not, but basically the the goal is to see if they have this stranger anxiety, mm-hmm. which does start to kick in after around 12 months old. Um, so typically after 12 months old, babies don't want to just go around to strangers, which is a very adaptive response um, to not just go with strangers. Um, and then the, the next step is the mother comes back in the room. So can the mother console the child? How does the child react now that the parent's back in the room? The str- but the stranger's left already, right? Like they leave before the mother comes back? I believe so. Yes. Okay. Honestly, like I, I don't do infant research. Yeah. So like I am a little sketchy on all the exact details, but the goals are to one, first get the baby just habituated to the new weird lab environment um, and see if the child is, this is kind of like these four defining features of attachment. Mm-hmm. Does the child feel safe to explore with the parent around? Mm-hmm. So are they like, you know, you see, you'll see the, you know, stereotypes of kindergartners being dropped off and they're just like clinging to their mother's leg while others are just like running away from them to go do things. So we're trying to assess, you know, how safe do they feel to go explore a new environment? Um, we're assessing how they feel when their attachment figure leaves the room. Are they distressed or do they not care? Are they indifferent? Um, assessing their stranger anxiety when the stranger is present. So are they wary of that person? Um, and then seeing, Next, how the baby um, interacts with the parent when they're back. Does can they be consoled or are they yeah. unconsolable and just you know and wailing and crying? Just kind of ignore the parent. Yeah, like, so that would be now. You left me. <laughs> yeah, so that's going to be our kind of avoidant attachment style. Okay. Is like they're just kind of indifferent. They're like, okay, I don't really care that you left. I don't care that you're back. I'm just kind of 
Interesting. Doing my own thing. So um, if you're a developmental, do, do they sort of treat it as these four just categorical bins or is this seen as some of these variables seem like they could be continuous to me. Like, like a baby could be more or less consolable. A baby could be more or less comfortable exploring. How is it measured? Or is it literally just, we watch all the tape and we give you one of these four labels. Traditionally, the infant attachment styles are measured categorically. So still, even in current papers, when you look, they usually do categorize infants. And because infant research is also hard to do, we further end up with oftentimes like a binary split. So we have four categories, but because most infants are securely attached. So Hmm. about, you know, 50 to 70%, depending on the samples on average are securely attached. So typically you end up getting the secure, non-secure binary split of the data, just because typically the sample sizes are small. Um, There are ways, I believe that they can convert these into more continuous attachments, but typically they're pretty lumped together into the binary. There's a three-way classification system. You can do the four-way classification system. Um, So it kind of compounds the the issue system. What was that? I think I learned the three-way system because all all I've ever heard is uh, secure, uh, anxious, avoidant. Mm -hmm. And then- So usually it's anxious, anxious, fearful. Anxious, fearful. Yeah. And then there's the avoidant. And then the fourth category is like, typically this disorganized. So they display some things about anxious, some characteristics about avoidant. Basically they're hard to classify. Like the behavior is very kind of all over the place and confusing. Um, So that's kind of that fourth category that comes out. How does the avoidant, how do the avoidant and fearful babies act in this situation? So if you were to be, if we had an avoidant infant, typically what we would see across those four categories, you would see the baby not really just, acknowledging the caregiver and then they leave and they, they're not very upset by it. They also don't really care about the stranger being there. Um, and they don't really need any comforting when the parent comes back because they weren't distressed in the first place. So they're really just kind of indifferent, I would say. Um, whereas the anxious is that different from disorganized or am I just mixing up different classification systems? Disorganized is going to be just a combination of features. So sometimes they're screaming and wailing other times they don't Uh care. It's very all over Uh the board. Whereas if you have like a purely anxious, you know, these are obviously like characterizations of, you know, these category bins, but if you have an anxious attached kid, these are going to be the kids that are like latched to their parents' leg at school (laughs) drop-off that won't leave. Um, And then when they come back, they're very hard to console because they're, they're so upset. Um, And then they're very wary of strangers and get very fearful of strangers as well. Okay. Okay. So secure, these are the sort of, that's what you want, right? Like in in theory, (laughs) that's a loaded question, (laughs) but yeah, like if you are, if, if the original researchers were were here, it seems like that they were strongly hinting at like secure sounds good, right? Like it's good to be secure. Yeah. They're rational, you know, adaptive responses. Like you should be wary of strangers as a young kid. Like it makes sense that you're upset that your primary source of life (laughs) has left you unexpectedly. (laughs) Um, And you should be comforted by the fact when they come back. So these are kind of like these adaptive rational responses. um, Whereas the other two are kind of, maladaptive to these and then fearful is just the kids that are very hard to console really like very anxious if the parent leaves Mm -hmm. and very hard to console and then avoidant is just like you're dead to me i don't care about your parent and then disorganized is just like sounds almost like 
oh, this guy's hard to classify. Yeah, that's honestly what it is. And that's something that we're also seeing in adult attachment, which, so we have these four categories um, of infant child attachments. And then when you look at adults, because we can have them fill out like or scale survey mm. reports, now we get your continuous dimensions mm. of attachment, mm-hmm. um, which are the dimensions of anxious attachment and dimensions of avoidant attachment. So you can think of them as two orthogonal dimensions and you can map those on to these four way classification systems. So a disorganized adult would be an adult that scores high on the the items assessing anxious attachment and high on the measures scoring, um, I'm sorry, on the measures indicating avoidant attachment. Whereas if you're anxious adult, you would be pretty low on the avoidance measures, but pretty high on the anxious measures and then vice versa for avoidance. So it maps on perfectly into this four-way system. We just measure it differently in adults. We don't have to put adults in rooms. So um, if I'm reading an introductory psych textbook and Mm -hmm. I learn about the strange situation and these four attachment styles, um, what, what comes next in the next paragraph? Like what, what, what are the implications of this or what, what did researchers think the implications were originally as these things were being studied? Yeah. So you're likely to come across kind of two next steps after they, the strange situation is always going to be going to be presented. And there's probably a nice diagram that explains it way better than <laughs> my attempt <laughs> was at the situation. So go pick up your intro psych text. I'll put a link um, on the, the, <laughs> the, the next step is going to be talking about what, you know, hypothesized causes of what causes infants to behave in one way or another. Um, maternal sensitivity is probably a phrase that may be included perhaps in the developmental intro textbook. And then the next step is going to be, oh, this may have influence on your adult attachment styles. Mm. And that's kind of it, like with very little detail after it. So I've taught intro psychology a lot. I've taught lifespan development a lot. Um, and it's really my slides just go into way more detail than probably what the students wanted afterward. Mm-hmm. But because it's my area, I spent a whole day on attachment mm-hmm. in my developmental psychology class, um, whereas mm-hmm. it's given maybe a page or two in your textbook. So you'll get a paragraph about maternal sensitivity, a paragraph that like, oh, this may correlate with your adult attachment styles. And then that's kind of the end of the story. Okay. So I, okay. Like how much do we know about the causes of this, uh, of infant attachment styles? Like, do we, do we have good data on what causes it? Um, I, for some reason have this strong belief that like sleep training might, might be a, a causal factor. Like it just like we, um, have friends, for example, and this is like how apparently my mom raised me where like, even at a few weeks of age, we were just sort of put in a room and if we cried, we cried. And she was like, whatever, they'll get over it. And she used to brag that all her children would sleep through the night at age like six weeks. Right. And, and so, um, that's basically because she just ignored, (laughs) ignored us. And we learned very quickly that you can cry all you want. Nobody's coming. Um, so has that been studied? Yeah. What do we know? Like what, if we're measuring quote unquote maternal sensitivity, like what are we measuring? How are we measuring it? And cause I also have heard that there's large cultural differences. Uh, I don't know how true that is, but I have this hazy recollection that like 
a whole bunch of um, far higher proportion of German kids were avoidant than some other culture that it was being compared to. Uh, in my mind, I, I've also connected that with German like uh, techniques for raising children. I think that this kind of sleep training is very common in Germany. That could be wrong as well. Anyway, so like, as you can see, I'm thinking about it, but I don't know much about it at all. So like, help me out. Like, what do we actually know about causal effects of in infant attachment style? Yeah. So this is a area that I, I know a little bit about as it refers to causes of adult attachment styles, because that's been kind of my primary focus mm -hmm. on the development of them across the lifespan. So I can't fully tell you that you're totally wrong on certain things or not, but I can try to offer a little bit of insight. So um, typically, I think in terms of the cross-cultural reference, this is probably the area I know the least about. So I'll just kind of get my knowledge out of the way in that area. Um, what, from my understanding, what we know is that there tends to be these four styles that we see cross-culturally, though um, there are some cultures where the proportions of those are different. And that's why earlier I said it's a loaded question if you should want secure attachment right. because you know, that's a very kind of subjective interpretation of like, what is the best type of attachment? Um, so if you ask an evolutionary psychologist, so Jeff Simpson um, has kind of been one of the key pioneers of this er uh, research, and then also Bruce Ellis, um, he has also been looking at kind of how different attachments are adaptive in different types of environments, um, which also gets at some of the hypothesized causes for why children may have certain characteristics of attachment. So one of what they're trying to do is show that um, anxious attachment, for example, or avoidant attachment, which we tend to look at as kind of maladaptive or like not what we should quote unquote want in our children, but depending on the environment that they're in, it can be a useful or rational response to the environment. So for example, if you're in an extremely harsh environment, and this is also where like life history theory also starts to intersect with attachment theory in the evolutionary bucket. Um, but if you're in a very harsh environment where resources are scarce, you know, it's a high stress environment, but it's predictably high stress. Like it's just a very harsh environment. Um, and you don't have, you know, good caregivers around you An avoidant type attachment style would make more sense. Why would you wail about with your caregiver, not being there if they're always not there, you know, if they're minimally there. Um, so it's kind of a waste of energy and resources, um, to be a little less attached. You know, it's a good idea to be less attached to these caregivers, um, and only, get from them what you absolutely need because they're not a consistent source of comfort of, you know, protection and things like that. Um, similarly, if you have a very unpredictable caregiver, so like sometimes they let you cry it out, sometimes they don't, um, that would be that unreliability, that variability in caregiver support or variability in environmental resources, um, would be predictive of a more anxious attachment style because you don't know there's a lot of uncertainty underpinning, like, well, maybe I should cry for a while because they're not here. And then they come back and maybe I should cry more, you know, like I'm really upset now. Um, so the idea is that in very, very harsh, consistently harsh environments an avoided attachment would make sense. Um, whereas in a very unpredictable, stressful environment, a more anxious attachment would make sense. Um, so that's kind of where some of those causes there was, I recall, I don't recall the specific details now, but there was 
an experimental study that they did with I think macaques to kind of try to test this hypothesis. And basically they made the food very unreliable and unpredictable for the mother to get, which then obviously directly relates to the, how the mother responds to their infants. And they found like up to four years later, there was like higher cortisol and greater stress and more characteristics of what we would define as anxious attachment in those offspring. Um, so basically they were allowed to experimentally manipulate the environment in a way that we obviously can't do with human babies. Um, to give some support for that idea, of course, macaques aren't human. So you know, take that, (laughs) take that for what it is. Um, but those are some of the key causes that we think about are kind of how responsive parents are, which is where maternal sensitivity comes in, um, which I mentioned, which is a big catch-all term for us, how they measure it depends on the study that you're looking at. Um, essentially what it boils down to is how responsive the mother is to the offspring's need. Do they, do they consistently kind of ignore them, which you would, hypothesize would be linked to that more avoidant style. Is it very unreliable? That would be hypothesized to be linked with anxious. Whereas if it's, you know, reasonable and consistently responsive, consistently offering that support, comfort and resources, you would hypothetically get a secure infant. Um, so how it's measured is, you know, very variable, but it's usually measured by the mother. And that's another limitation is we know very little about these details with fathers because mothers are typically the primary caregiver that's measured in most of these, these studies. Mm-hmm. What do you mean when you say a hush environment though? Um, do, are we, you know, I, like if you're, I, I, I can see there's a lot of variation in terms of uh, the, just the mother's personality, maybe like warmth towards the infant. Uh, like in some cases, this like, shortages of probably nutrition and and food and stuff like that. So I guess there's, I'm just thinking there's all sorts of ways that an environment could be harsh for an infant. Um, You know, I like my, and, and some of those things weren't sort of covary, right? Like there's probably infants that like me (laughs) didn't get as much time and affection from the mom, but probably food was plentiful. Uh, There may be situations say in in the developing world. I mean, I've heard that like in the Amazon, for example, babies don't sort of, they're attached to the mother for like the first few years of their life. Like they never sort of leave like the mother's chest. They're just constantly there. I had some friends uh, back home in Melbourne who were going to try to raise their kid that way. I don't know how that went. I ha- I'm going to have to check in with them. But the, I think it was like, you know, based on some theories around that being the more sort of uh, natural human way to do things um, that fits in better with like how we've evolved and how we've sort of been parented throughout evolution and stuff like that. So, yeah, can you say more about, firstly, like I'm just really curious, like what, what, what these cultural differences really are like what where we see higher rates of which kind of attachment style uh but also just yeah like what what we're actually talking about when we talk about sort of harsh environments i mean you obviously you you said it's different in different studies and stuff like that but yeah it it really is so with my knowledge of specifically kind of these harsh 
environments and how these things are conceptualized do come from a more evolutionary informed perspective. Um, so I may not have the full knowledge of like the traditional development developmentalist tradition on this, but typically when we're, and this is where life history theory kind of interacts, um, with attachment theory from this perspective is the harsh environment is going to be very low resource and consistently low resource environment. Um, and part of the issue again, with when we're measuring these things is they do kind of take on this very like weird conception. Um, so Western educated, industrialized, rich democratic conception of what harsh is because harsh is going to be very different in the United States versus, you know, all other different types of countries. Um, so how it's measured can be, um, done with various scales, like the adverse child ex- childhood experiences. So it's like, have you, you know, suffered abuse and, you know, kind of these more traditional measures. Um, also what is used terribly as a proxy, which I think is going a little bit more out of style now, but socioeconomic status is typically, um, and, you know, easy proxy, um, for harsh environments. Whereas then when we look at unpredictability, it's the variability in that harshness that we're looking at. Um, and this can be done by, you know, how subjectively stressful was the environment? Because some people are in environments, but if that's your whole conception of what environment is, it may not be actually perceived as stressful, um, or harsh for those individuals. So, you know, typically, predictors such as SES and like parental education are also used, um, as proxies for it. But I think overall the measures, like a lot of developmental studies that use some retroactive measures, um, can just kind of be a little bit messy and unclear. Um, but as I said, it's not my like top area of knowledge. So <laughs> I don't want to like, I just I'm want that grain of salt to be out there. It's not like my main area that, um, I focused on with attachment development specifically. Yeah. So, well, do you know, like, do we, do we see reliable differences between developing countries and developed nations or does, does SES say within the U S predict infant attachment? Do you know? Um, I honestly don't have a solid answer for you on that. I would presume that there are differences um, just because it's just kind of a standard rule in psychology at this point that like how we conceptualize things in Western countries doesn't, easily translate into other cultures and cultural norms. Um, so, and that really is kind of the point that, um, researchers working on kind of how these types of environments can actually trying to reframe it in a positive light of like, Hey, these harsh environments, like it's not always like this deficit perspective, like, Oh, harsh environment, poor, you know, insecure attachment, all the bad outcomes, you know, leading (laughs) throughout your entire developmental trajectory. Um, so just really looking at how these environments just impact differences and variation and how these can lead to good and bad, um, outcomes across development, which I think is a more positive perspective on it. Um, but I don't think at least in the literature that I'm familiar with, we have good cross-cultural data Mm. in this area, which could either be my own ignorance or it's not there or a combination of, both, which I think is probably a combination of both. Hmm. Okay. So, so far the, the parenting advice is, <laughs> well, you know, good luck. <laughs> assuming, assuming you want a securely attached child, which is, you know, completely up to you each to their own. Uh, the parenting advice I'm picking up so far is, you know, have resources and, 
don't be unpredictable. Wow. I think that would, I think I would endorse <laughs> that <laughs> generally. Yeah. That's helpful. I know. I really, I really want to know about this sleep training thing though, because like, so, okay, we have friends live in Seattle um, and they have like been sleep training their daughter from quite a young age. They had their baby like a couple of months before us. And so they, they started sleep training her, letting her cry it out. And she is a little bit, I don't know. I, now I'm just talking about anecdotes, but she, she is a little bit like avoidant. Like sometimes like, um, so our friend will tell us that, yeah, sometimes this baby just kind of ignores her and like acts like she, she doesn't exist and stuff like that. And like, I'm just like, yeah, so our, our son just turned seven months old today and we've still never like, like we've responded to him every single time he's cried, right? Like we've never let him cry it out. We've never, he's never been away from us. He's never really been alone. He sleeps in the bed with us still. And yeah, like I, I'm just terrified, <laughs> I'm terrified of like breaking him or like doing doing something to him at this point that's going to affect him later in his life but i think and we'll get it we can get into this now like i like your point of view well you can tell me your point of view but i get the feeling that you just don't think much of what we're going to do is going to make that much of a difference to him later in life would that be would that be fair to say it's not inaccurate but yeah so i think um this is something that I've been focusing on a little bit more. And this is probably the area that I received the most pushback from individuals in the field in terms of this perspective, but I'm going to keep forging ahead anyways. Um, so a key premise of attachment theory is, you know, and this is going back to Bobley's work, you know, from cradle to grave, quote unquote. Um, so, you know, as a parent, obviously you're, very concerned with like, what am I doing now? And how is that going to impact them? Um, to an extent, of course, what you do matters for how they turn out, but then also like on the same side of the coin, like it also doesn't like, they're just kind of going to be the kids that they're going to be. Um, and this comes from, you know, a lot of more traditional behavioral genetic perspectives, you know, from like the nineties, um, and early two thousands, but also from developmental psychologists, such as Alison Gopnik, if you want some reassuring book, I would highly recommend her book, the gardener and the carpenter, um, which really does a great job of like showing, like, it does matter. Like the environment that you set up matters, but like your specific day-to-day interactions, like you can't build the child you want to build, you know, but it's like, Mm -hmm. give them enough opportunity and freedom to explore. And they're going to be who they're going to be. So you want them to be the best version of themselves rather than like constructing a specific type of child. Um, So I take that view with psychology generally when I think about development. Um, So of course, if you have children in environments that are extremely impoverished, um, you know, really lacking resources and opportunity, like that's going to have a negative effect. What we don't know as much about, which is becoming a more common problem is like the over-parenting kind of effect that we have of like children, like never being out of sight of adults, like throughout their whole childhood being like over-protected and like not getting to experience risk and, you know, learn by trial and error in a way. So we, we know less about those effects, um, just because they're not typically studied, but yeah, generally my point of view would be, yeah, coddling is the, the term. So some people would say we have a lot of good evidence. Um, I think there's definitely something there. I think it's not just a one way street of 
you know, a completely impoverished environment is going to cause bad things. I think you can swing too far the other way as well. Um, but generally with attachment, I would say predictability is probably like consistency is a big key. Um, and this actually comes from some research on, um, childcare. I don't know about it or I don't know the details offhand, but it's like in my course slides that are available online. Um, but they've done research on kind of the key predictors of like childcare facilities, like what leads to the best outcomes for kids. One, just, you know, a good facility, obviously you don't want to just be like having your kid in like this dirty, disgusting, impoverished facility. Um, but the other key predictor is the consistency of the staff. So if you're looking for childcare facilities, a good question is what's your staff turnover? Um, because from an evolutionary perspective, kids were around a certain you know, set of owl parents, family and things like that. So kids can have multiple attachment figures, but it really comes down to the consistency. Um, so you don't want your kid with a different caregiver every single day. You prefer to have them with consistent caregivers because that's most aligned with how kids typically develop. They have a small circle of caregivers that are consistent. Um, so that would be, you know, kind of a key piece. I would say consistency of caregivers and, you know, try to be consistent in how you treat them. Um, so it makes sense to them, but you know, I'm not a clinician, <laughs> nor a parent, nor, um, a developmental, like traditional psychologist in that sense, but that would be for my broad expertise. That would be my distilled knowledge to you. Okay. Another question. Uh, I was listening to you, your conversation with Xavier Bonilla, mm -hmm. uh, and you were talking about, um, researchers, who believe there is a large uh, shared environment component of infant attachment. Um, so can you say a bit more about that? I, I remember you were sort of arguing that it's not actually based on very much, very much evidence. Um, yeah. So yeah. Talk me through that. Like maybe, maybe just sort of break down, um, you know, the, these basic, uh, like bins in behavioral genetics of like heritability, shared environment, non-shared environment. Um, and yeah, like what, what do we know about infant attachment and its relationship to genes versus the environment? That's a great question. Probably one of my favorite topics because I really strongly believe people aren't focusing on this enough. Um, so starting with the three bins. So what behavior genetics does in a very basic sense is partition phenotypic variance. What that means is when we get a measure, so a self-report measure of attachment, for instance, um, we have a sample of a few hundred people. We have variation in those individuals' scores. So what behavior genetics aims to do is by um, looking, comparing twins to um, siblings uh, typically or identical twins and, um, dizygotic twins, which are equivalent to siblings, genetically speaking, they use some, you know, mathematical modeling to partition that variance among all of those people, um, to understand what proportion of that variance is attributable to, um, shared genetic influence, non-shared environmental influence and shared environmental influence. So that's our three buckets. So importantly, when we get those estimates, it's talking, it's a population statistic, not an individual statistic. So you can't say 50% of my attachment is due to my genes, whereas the other 50% is how my parents, um, parents interacted with me. Mm -hmm. So it's just explaining the variation in a population. Um, so when we look at attachment, 
shockingly, there's maybe a dozen studies. I forgot the exact number. I have a preprint up right now um, that I'm lagging on the revision. I did get invited for a revision at some point. I'll finish it. Um, but it's a very short paper just outlining all the research that I've been able to find across three years of searching for it. Um, we have maybe a dozen studies across the whole lifespan, which is shocking because behavior genetics has been around since the seventies. Like we've been able to do these calculations for decades. Mm. We have massive amounts of data, um, in all other areas like personality psychology, um, for example, is, you know, really well represented. Almost every area that I've looked at has more behavioral genetic studies on it than does attachment, despite attachment being a huge theory within psychology across all these areas. So we have maybe a dozen studies on attachment across the lifespan that have done that I've collected the data so we can get these three estimates of heritability, shared environment and non-shared environment. Sort of ask. So my, my basic understanding is that like you will determine the heritability estimate from something like, well, um, so uh, identical twins, how much more similar are they to each other on this trait than dizygotic twins? So non-identical twins, right? So if you see, um, a much higher correlation among the identical twins than the non-identical twins, you sort of interpret that as there's an influence of genetics here. Uh, sort of, you're sort of assuming that their environments are sort of equivalently similar uh, because they're generally in the same family, same age, stuff like that. And then shared environment would be something like, well, how much more similar are twins raised together than twins raised apart where you sort of can see, uh, you know, well, I, I genetically they're identical, but so any, if we see a greater difference uh, between twins raised apart than twins raised together, this implies an influence of the environment over this trait. Um, and then non-shared environment Everything yeah. else. Is that just everything else? <laughs> just everything else. Right, right. Um, so it includes measurement error. It includes, it's basically another way to think about it is the shared environment is going to be systematic variants that we're looking yeah. at. So things that we can systematically say influence um, whatever trait. Whereas when we think of non-shared environment, it's just kind of like unsystematic kind of random. It also includes measurement error, you know, so in the SEM model. So um you know, it's unfortunate because shared environment has been conflated with like family, whereas non-shared environment has been conflated with like everything else, mm. um, which is largely true, but not technically correct. So like using the systematic versus unsystematic variants is more technically correct way to talk about it. Mm. Um, but exactly as you described, we use these kind of classical twin design. We have, uh, the, I don't do these analyses myself, but mm. <laughs> behavior genetists have a lot more sophisticated methods now available, mm. but this is where the general idea comes from is there's like this equal environments assumption that you alluded to where as twins and siblings in the same family generally have, um, I guess a twin environments, no more or less similar or different than a sibling environment, for example, um, which people still argue about, but from my reading of the literature has been completely validated repeatedly over and over. So I, I would say it's fine. Um, but yeah, so if we see twins raised in the same family, any similarities, could be due to genes and or shared environment because both of those pieces create similarities. Um, how we know it's mostly genes and not the shared environment is when we look at twins reared apart, 
they don't have the same environment at all. So it can't be the shared environment that's causing the similarities. It has to be the shared genes. And the the similarities between twins reared apart and twins reared together are remarkably equal, which gives us Mm -hmm. the, the confidence that this systematic shared environment isn't quote doing much. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when we look at pretty much every trait we know about in psychology, which was, there's a really cool interactive website from Polderman 2015. It was a nice paper that they did this meta now massive meta meta analysis on heritability across like 15,000 traits or something. So you can go online and look at these things. What we know about pretty much a basic law of what we know about psychology traits is about half of the variation in a population is due to genetic variation. Whereas most of the remaining is due to unsystematic or non-shared environmental variants. And depending on the trait, you may have a small contribution of this shared environment. This tends to be more common um, in younger ages and tends to go away almost completely by adulthood. Mm. So any effects that we do find of the shared environment tend to drop off by adolescence. Typically, mm. um, there seems to be one key exception to that trait and it seems to be religion or religious affiliation. That seems to be kind of a exception. Um, but also people think attachments and exception and I argue against that. So I just may, I'm not as robust on the religion literature, but yeah. Yeah. So what do those 12 studies teach us? <laughs> Those 12 studies, my grand conclusion of my paper is that these 12 studies show us that attachment is just like every other trait we study in psychology. It's remarkably unremarkable. Um, And I get pushback on this because I'm sometimes told that I'm mischaracterizing the literature when it's literally right there. And I pull out quotes from authors that are like, 2017, attachment is an exceptional trait. Why are you mischaracterizing them? Literally right there. Um, So- Sounds like a reviewer you might be quoting here. Yeah, I need to tone down my uh, approach in the papers, basically, with my reviewer feedback. Um, But basically what these 12 studies show um, is we have a handful of studies in in young children. So between like one year and four years old or so, um, we have like one study in like young adolescents and a handful of studies in adults. So these studies, the variance they're trying to partition is a categorical measure of attachment stuff? which is where all the problems come in. Um, so when we, let's just look at just the, the infant young child studies. Um, there's a handful of studies. Um, they're all twin studies. So everything we're looking at are twin studies, which one doing research with babies is hard doing research with twin babies. I imagine is even harder. So you can imagine the sample sizes like about a hundred. One of them is like 50, 50, uh, 50 babies in it. And then we're running SEM models to partition variants. Mm. The primary issue is one, we're underpowered for even mm. a continuous measure. You make it a categorical measure and your sample size requirements go through the roof. So mm. um, I forget the exact numbers, but I think it's something like a thousand babies are needed to actually have correct power to even observe the heritability estimates that they're arguing aren't there. Mm. Um and what's even better about it is because they're like, it's harder to find the heritability estimates. You need a little bit more power to find the heritability estimate as compared to the shared environmental estimate. Um, but they're even underpowered to even claim that there's a shared environmental effect. Um, there's only one study, I believe they're about four years old, the average age in the study. It's only one study by Chris Freely, which anyone who wants to know social personality attachment, please go read his work. Huge influence on me. Amazing scholar. Um, there's one study that is 
just power. Like we're just at the power threshold. It's like 485 um, Mm. twins. So we're just at the power threshold. And what they find is a small heritability estimate, a you know, moderate shared environmental estimate and a moderate non-shared. It's the only study that actually measured a genetic estimate because mm. they're actually highly powered enough, but because the model with all three components in it, so heritability, shared environment, and non-shared environment didn't fit worse than the two bucket model of just the shared and non-shared environment it can be also concluded that, you know, the, there's no heritability estimate. Um, but it also doesn't fit worse, (laughs) you know, so it's the only study that has a hint of it in young children that is adequately powered. So my, my claim is that almost none of these studies actually can give claims to my Mm. argument Mm. or their argument. The only benefit that I have is that every other trait we know of, like the null hypothesis should be that there's an effect because that makes sense because that's what every other well-powered research area tells us there is. Yeah. That's really interesting. So, so in that study with the four-year-olds, are they using this strange situation or are you, are we measuring it continuously by that age? Yeah, this one is a continuous measurement. So there's this attachment Q sort measure, which I'm not totally familiar with on the the details of the Q sort, mm. um, but that does give you a more continuous measure, which is why there are higher, more appropriately powered with only 500 twins as opposed to a 70 baby study that's using a <laughs> binary so what, variable. What about um, uh, adult studies? What uh, what are the kind of heritability estimates there? The adult studies show exactly what we see for every other study where we have zero shared environment contribution, um, about 40, 30 to 45% heritability estimate. And then the rest is the non-shared unsystematic variance, just like what we would expect with every other variable. Yeah. But like, it's not, it's intuitively, it's not what I would expect at all because (laughs) like I sort of interpret that and this may be the wrong interpretation, but it seems like you're saying yeah, there's no shared environmental, uh, no variances explained by shared environment in adult attachment style. I take that to mean, okay, therefore n- nothing I can do to this kid is going to matter for his attachment style. Nothing his mom can do. We could just start, you know, kicking him around like a football, or, you know, like just leave him on the roof to sleep when he's annoying us and it won't have any effect on his later life attachment style. That seems hard to swallow. And it is. And this is why, um, and here, here's where I'll save you. So this is where what I call kind of like traditional behavior genetic views start to diverge in interpretation from more contemporary behavior genetic data, um, that we've learned really in like the past decade. Um, so traditionally this is where the conflation of shared environment and family environment breaks down. Um, so traditionally behavior genetics has said like, you know, heritability is what matters. And there's still people all over Twitter today saying these things, um, you know, heritability matters. The family environment has no impact on who you become as an adult. Um, and everything's random and unique variants peers matter, which, are not totally wrong, but the truth is all somewhere in the middle. Right. Um, and what we know from 
more robust modeling and techniques and uh, more mature behavioral genetic data is that the family environment and parenting in quotes doesn't equal the shared environment. So I think you, you mentioned you just have one baby, right? So, um, what's, what's fascinating is when parents have two babies, you realize everything you think worked excellent with the first baby doesn't work on the second baby. Um, and what this means is that parents don't parent every baby in exactly the same way. Um, so the, the problem is a misalignment between how we measure parenting and what parenting actually is. Um, and when we look at the ways in basically parenting can be non-systematic variants, or it can be part of the non-shared environment, um, which if we have large enough models, Paige Harden does a lot of good work in this area. Um, There's a 2013 chapter with her and Eric Turkheimer, I believe it is, that really, it's a, a very mathematical heavy paper, but it breaks down like how you can use these genetic data and actually find kind of quasi causal evidence, um, of how parenting impacts children. And basically what this is, is the, the non-shared environment, this variance that we're measuring can be you parenting and having a different relationship with both of your kids. And if we measure those things correctly and model it correctly, you can actually see that, you know, it within a, within a family, how much I've done this, I've done research on this in spanking. So like, Mm -hmm. for example, a, child that is spanked more has worse outcomes, even within the same family, which Mm -hmm. you can't dismiss as the family environment, not doing anything because the child that receives, you know, more spanking has worse. Yeah. (laughs) I I can totally dismiss that. That's all the kids fault. (laughs) But I I get what you're saying, but it, I mean, it blows away. I think my at least sleep training theory, because I think parents are very likely to use the same sleep training when they have multiple children i i know my mom yeah she claims she did the same thing yeah and it worked great in her view yeah i mean i i know very little about sleep training i am not a parent and i've not had to cross this bridge yet um but yeah i mean let's say you do i'm curious what like all right what am i gonna do based on all this knowledge all your knowledge uh, like you got a seven-month-old baby would you leave them to cry it out? Or would you just sort of, I mean, I'm being lazy. I guess I could look at what research has actually been done on this and what the effects are, but I don't know. I was hoping you'd just uh, tell me. I strive to be consistent in everything that I do, but I'm also reading a great book right now called Mom Jeans by Abigail Tucker. And I've become convinced that when I do become a mother, nothing I'm thinking right now that I would do is actually going to happen based on the research she's sharing. So whatever I answer now, apparently I will be a very different person once I actually become a mother. So I, I would like to say I strive for consistency. Um, and, and, you know, I, it'll probably all go away. So (laughs) I, I have no idea. I'm trying to philosophically manifest the parenting strategy of like, Alison Gopnik's work of building the best environment, giving as much opportunity you can and supporting, you know, your kid in, yeah, you know, yeah. things that they're interested and good at. Um, but you know, yeah, we'll, so- we'll check back in in a few years <laughs> and see how it's going. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems like, yeah, maybe it doesn't matter. Like it, it like seems like a potentially pivotal thing, whether you like leave a baby 
to just like cry and they the caregiver never comes or you you don't right and like yeah. I think like these friends of mine who told me about you know these like Amazon tribes people I think I like yeah like I have this naive assumption that well what what they're doing must be must be good right <laughs> they're, they're Amazon tribes people they're perfect like they you know um but, but their anyway, environment's very different yeah yeah totally totally and also like I told my wife about it and she was like well, he's not saying strapped to me for three years. <laughs> like, that's not going to happen. Um, she was like, you could do it if you want. I was like, no. no. Anyway, um, okay, so maybe let's talk about adult attachment style too because I'm pretty interested in this too. And I, I said to you in one of our emails that like I'm, I've never taken any of these self-report scales, but I'm pretty sure my wife and I have very different uh, attachment styles. Um, and it's funny, I was just talking to a friend earlier today and talking about what we were going to talk about on the pod. And he is convinced that, um, he said he had done a bunch of work related to attachment style with his therapist and his wife had too. And he thinks that like saved their marriage or something like that. So, um, you mentioned earlier, there's these two dimensions that we, we measure people on. And one was, um, was it anxiety and avoidance, the two? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, right. So what's at the other end of those poles? So you, I guess you're either anxious or at the other end is like you're just not not secure, you're very trusting or something like that? Yeah. So basically how these dimensions are conceptualized is they are two orthogonal dimensions. So you can be high or low or anywhere in between on both. They're not necessarily dependent on one another. So the idea is if we map the high and low on each of these dimensions, you basically get that four category attachment. So if mm. you score low on all of these, you know, self-report items and you would be secure. Um, so for example, attachment anxiety, um, is characterized by kind of this hyperactivation of your kind of like monitoring system of what's going on. Like my partner's definitely going to leave me. They're definitely cheating on me. Their behavior suspicious. Um, it's obviously correlated with chronic jealousy and like really, negative partner directed behaviors, um, uh, such as intimate partner violence, which is the focus of my dissertation. Mm -hmm. Um, so individuals that are not that tend to be very trusting of their partner, you know, like they can go away on vacations and mm -hmm. okay, cool. Have fun. Like see you when so you get back and they're not worried about it. Yeah. I mean, jealousy, fascinating variable. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of between person variation in it. Uh, it would that be the main manifest manifestation uh, for in everyday life for this dimension? It is a primary correlate of attachment anxiety. So individuals that do tend to score really high tend to also be chronically jealous. They tend to also interpret ambiguous behavior as negative. Um, and also a strong correlate of attachment anxiety is neuroticism or emotional instability, uh, which is, you know, a well-known personality trait, part of the big five and the hexaco model. And when I say strong correlation, I'm talking about like 0 0.5, 0 0.6 strong correlation. It's, you know, it's a very strong correlation between anxiety and neuroticism. So it's a very emotionally unstable attachment to your partner, whereas attachment avoidant is kind of this indifference. Um, so these individuals when presented with the same ambiguous stimuli that I mentioned, just really don't have any thoughts about it. They're just like, okay, but they also tend to discount actual threats to a relationship. So if like someone is flirting with your partner and you can actually see they're flirting, if you're highly secure, you'll probably just laugh if it's funny and just be like, ha, huh, that's hilarious because you trust your partner not to do anything. Whereas if you're really avoidant, you may just 
not even, not even care that it's even happening. Um, so you're not having any, you know, kind of reaction to it. And also these individuals just tend to kind of be avoidant of like physical and emotional intimacy with mm-hmm. their partner. Um, so they tend to obviously be less committed. So they report less relationship committed, uh, commitment. Mm-hmm. And they also some interesting work from work from Nathan DeWall have, has shown that they also tend to have a more wandering eye towards like attractive other people. So they mm-hmm. notice mm-hmm. alternative partners in their relationship um, outside of the relationship more than a secure person would. Oh, I, I never, I, that's not me. I, I never know. <laughs> no. uh, so um, I'm confused though, because if they're orthogonal dimensions, then it should be possible to be highly avoidant, but also highly anxious. But that situation you've described, that seems almost impossible. So like that would involve somebody flirting with my partner. I'm super anxious about it, but I also don't, don't care. Like how they, are they actually orthogonal? Like, because uh, I, I almost don't see how they could be. Yeah, it's a good question. So originally, the original kind of scale that's most often used was developed 20 years ago now in 2000. Um, so this is where theory is starting to kind of be misaligned with the actual data. So one couple points. First, we don't really understand what dis- this kind of disorganized, so highly anxious and highly avoidant individuals look like because we have two separate measures. You give them the scale and you end up with two subscales and you just correlate the anxiety with whatever, correlate avoidance with whatever. Um, So because of the way we measure it and also analyze it in models, we kind of don't know like what this person looks like in real life. Um, We don't focus on that. We, even in my own research, you focus on the variable and the unique Mm -hmm. variance of that variable predicting whatever your outcome is. Um, So it's kind of a consequence of measurement and just like general practice in psychology. Um, The second point, and Marco Del Giudice has some good work on attachment a few years ago, looking cross-culturally at these things, um, specifically with sex differences, but also correlations between these dimensions. So in some cultures you see very little correlation. So if I were to take it, is my anxiety correlated with my avoidance? What tends to be the case is that from my own data experience with this measure is that in college students, which is typically who we target, there tends to be a larger correlation between these dimensions and what you would get in say like an MTER example, for example. Um, why that's the case, I haven't seen anyone focusing on like what what's explaining these patterns, what it means for measurement, what it means for kind of the conceptualization and the theory, but it's something that I've noticed in my own work. Um, so it might be again, a weird college student effect that we see these high correlations. Um, but it, it's kind of just been treated as an artifact correlation. Like, is it higher anxiety correlates with lower avoidance? It's usually high on both. So there tends to be this weird, and I don't know if it's just like the nature again of like American college students and whatever that weird phase is that we're looking at. Um, but it tends to be a correlation in, in my own data about 0.3 to 0.4. So it's not Mm. trivial, you know, it's a pretty Mm. strong correlation between the dimensions, Mm. but that varies cross-culturally. And that also varies by sample. So you tend to see a lower correlation, like when I've done MTurk samples or like, you know, quote unquote community samples as compared to college student samples. I haven't seen anyone really looking at why though. So people that are more anxious and jealous are more likely overall to have the wandering eye 
themselves. Actually, that makes sense, right? Like, no, no. So usually it's the avoidant person that dies. The, but if they're correlated, right? Cause you said, yeah. So that, that is the interesting thing is like in my own data, when I look at the two dimensions, if you just look at like bivariate correlations, attachment and avoidance are both pretty much equally correlated with most of the variables that you have. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you, you know, part, partition out that variance. So you just look at the unique effect of anxiety. A lot of the effects of avoidance tend to be more inconsistent in my own data that I've looked at with my specific outcomes that I've looked at. I see really consistent and robust re- like relationships of anxiety predicting um, these different relationship outcomes, whereas avoidance tends to be more inconsistent in you know how well it predicts other things. But I've also focused my research on a pretty narrow area so that may not generalize to all the outcomes that people tend to look at. Honestly, like I didn't totally understand that. Cause like, to me, it's like, okay, well, if there's these two dimensions, they're supposed to be orthogonal, but they correlate 0.3 in college students. And the anxious people tend to be also the more avoidant people. But are you saying, okay, well that, that correlation breaks down. So like avoidance predicts, uh, the wandering eye, but it's not well predicted by the anxiety dimension, for example. I think a way to think about it with, again, we don't, no one really focuses on what this highly anxious, highly avoidant person looks like. So yeah, yeah. it, I, I get your point that it, it's difficult to imagine someone who fits like the archetype of the highly anxious person and the highly avoidant person in a single situation. Yeah. But remember kind of when we were talking about the infant attachment, it can be inconsistent responses as well over time. So also a limitation of what we do is we typically ask people like in general, like how uncomfortable are you with intimacy with your partner? What a hard question to answer. So again, I think a lot of these like weird artifacts that we're seeing in research are also just a consequence of how we measure things like most things in psychology. Um, but imagine a person. So here's, here's a situation that may give a better idea of what a highly anxious, highly avoidant correlated individual might look like. So their partner does something that upsets them, whatever they do, maybe they're not giving them enough attention or, um, giving them enough affection. So the, the individual that we're analyzing right now is upset. They feel, they perceive their partners rejecting them they get fearful that this means something really bad. Like they don't love me anymore. Some, you know, catastrophizing, um, interpretation of that behavior. Now, instead of what a secure person quote unquote might do by communicating, Hey, I think, you know, you behave this way and it's making me feel this way. That would be, you know, probably what a therapist would tell you is a, is a proper (laughs) thing to do is communicate your feelings with your partner. Instead of doing that, they may avoid their partner, right? So give them like the cold shoulder or be highly avoidant so that their partner now knows something's wrong, Mm -hmm. right? So now you can see the anxious emotional response with the avoidant behavioral reaction. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of the questions, if you look at the measures, make sense in that way, because a lot of the attachment anxiety questions are very emotional focused, whereas the avoidant questions have a lot to do with like how you actually respond behaviorally, mm-hmm. which could also be explaining some of this, whereas individuals that are very insecure and how and neurotic in these ways mm-hmm. that characterize highly anxious individuals tend to have very, you know, maladaptive behavioral reactions to their partners rather than like a clear communication strategy. Um, so that does that kind of give you a better yeah, archetype yeah. of what that person might look like? 
yeah. yeah. Like, could you diagnose me? Give me some of these. <laughs> give me some of the items. I really now I'm curious because I think I think I might be avoided. I have. I think this, you should take the the quiz. I think Chris Fraley has it on his website. You should. Oh, well, let's let's find. Take it. it. Hang on. Yeah. Chris Fraley. Chris Fraley. F R A L E Y. L E Y. Yeah. So I have this tendency. Um, if I get upset at my wife, um, I don't really want to talk to her. Like I, I want to just like, leave me alone. Don't touch me. I'll like often used to like have these tantrums and go like for a walk and like, just need to get away. And it's so interesting to me because she has the opposite reaction. If she gets upset and you know, this it doesn't happen that often. We're pretty happy. Like we, we don't upset each other that much, but if she gets upset at me, I find it so fascinating because she just really wants to like talk through it. Right. Like she wants uh, to be close. Like she, her instinct is to come like towards me. My instinct is like the polar opposite to like go away. And it just seems so similar to me to that like strange situation. Right. Like with that, the baby who's like, no, like you're dead to me versus the baby that, you know, wants to like deal with it, deal with the problem. And I so like, I just, I'm very convinced that her way is better. Right. Like, I think we put a divorce by now if we both had my like instincts in this situation, because, you know, like you can't solve problems unless you talk through them. And I think, you know, communication is so important. But so many times it's just, it's just really hard for me if I'm actually upset and like emotionally hurt to talk and to open up. And I really like everything in me just sort of pulls me to like want to get away and want to be alone and stuff like that. So I'll take this thing, but I'm, that's avoidant, right? Like, is that what it sounds to you? Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. So I think too, part of, I remember reading an article about this at some point, but look, the anxious attachment really is more of like the reaction, the emotional response, whereas avoidance really getting at like behavioral Mm. responses to distressing situations, um, which as you described, yours would probably come up as more avoidant, whereas your wife's would come up as, you know, less avoidant, more secure. Um, Mm. So I wonder too, with attachment, and I may not be the first one to think about this, but I'm wondering if when we think about attachment dimensions, because there's been kind of like this curious case of avoidant attachment, because how do you, it's like an absence of an attachment. It doesn't conceptually make that much sense when you think about it. So I, I think attachment is more how we think about attachment psychology, this emotional, like, I feel like my partner's going to reject me, or I trust my partner, kind of these two anchors is more of like all of attachment of what we think about. Like people sit on this continuum and then avoid an attachment really isn't its own dimension. It's how individuals then respond to that Mm. emotional reaction Mm. that they have, which makes more sense when you actually think of situations like what you just said. Um, So, you know, if you think about like in a, in a therapy sense, what are the number one things that basically every therapist will tell you one reframe the situation. So like first step is like, are you assessing a situation correctly? So in a relationship context, your partner's talking to someone of the opposite sex or some other interested, you know, kind of person that's like, you know, laughing and whatever with them is your perception of the situation. I don't trust my partner. They're doing something shysty. 
and flirting with that person. They're betraying me right now. Or is your reaction? Oh, they're probably just talking to someone for some, you know, innocent reason for, you know, a million ambiguous, innocent things could also be happening. So that's the number one step is like, how are you perceiving that information? And then the second thing is what you just described is how do you actually communicate that? Mm. Whereas what a therapist would probably tell you is, you should be more like your wife and communicate, you know, what you're feeling and talk it through um, rather than avoiding situations and trying to get the other person to read your emotional mind of what's going mm-hmm. on. Um, so I feel like, I feel like there are issues with this kind of orthogonal conceptualization. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the activation, how I conceptualize adult attachment or romantic attachment is it's a threat monitoring system. We're a pair bonding species. We need to monitor threats to that pair bond and then address them correctly. Mm-hmm. So to me, that anxious attachment, you know, from the very secure neutral end all the way to the highly reactive end is really that system and people fall in that continuum. Mm-hmm. And then avoidance is going to be more of how you actually address and correct and respond to that threat. Um, yeah. That may make more sense. How do we, how do we measure that different? I'm not <laughs> really sure the solution to that part, but Mm, well, good question, because I'm on Chris Fraley's website and the link to the survey that would actually give me the results is not working. So, Oh, no. That's what the hell? What the hell, Chris? Wow. Chris, sort, if you're listening to this. Sort your shit out. I can, ah, so the, the link to the one that's not going to give me feedback Twitter. does work, uh, but, well, at least I can see the items, right? Okay, so. You should add him on Twitter for that. He'll probably respond. He's pretty <laughs> active in responding on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm afraid that I will lose my partner's love. Oh, okay. Here we go. Okay. So yeah, you can get, you can see kind of the anxious pieces coming in there. Attachment styles in close relationships. I'm afraid that I will lose my partner's love. I worry a lot about my relationships. It makes me mad that I don't get the affection and support I need from my partner. I'm very comfortable being close to romantic partners. That's going to be an avoidant question. It's not difficult for me to get close to my partner. I don't feel comfortable opening up to romantic partners. I find it survey is a bit of a mess, isn't it? Because some are related to all my relationships. Some are related to the specific partner I have. And excellent point. (laughs) Yeah. Point with um, Xavier Bonilla that like, a lot of this is going to be related to your partner. Yeah. So when I, when I use this survey myself, I take out, I may, I modify the question items to be very specific to my partner right now. Mm. Um, so this is another debate that you're wandering into mm. um, with an attachment is, is it attachment styles or is it, you know, partner specific mm. um, you know, to what extent, if you're anxious in one relationship, are you anxious in the other? Mm. Um, so there's kind of this style component where attachments kind of conceptualize as like a personality trait. It's just something you have and therefore you have to, you know, address that. Uh Whereas I think there's some truth to that, but I think it's a lot more malleable and it does really depend on your situation that you're in and the partner that you have. Mm. Um, so personally, my own history, like I have had very different relationship experiences across my various partners because they are each, very different people that have impacted how I respond and think about the relationship as well. And I think that's not emphasized enough, which is reflected in the statements of like, Oh, my romantic partners. Well, which one, like at what time in what situation, you know? So, um, I try to always make them very specific to my part, like taking out the S on the partners there. 
and this does seem very focused on romantic relationships, right? So like, yes. it's, it's not people, you know, I'm an adult now. Nobody cares about my attachment to my mom. <laughs> like this is, this seems to be the case, right? Yeah. Usually most of the research is focused on romantic, romantic partners, specifically when you get to adulthood, when that tra- transition occurs from like, when does it make sense to talk about your attachment to your parent mm. transitioning over to a romantic partner? Can we have, can friends be attachment figures? Can we assess attachment to teachers, for example, mm. or attachment to God, for example, those are all questions that are out there. I say, no, I say it's parents and romantic partners from an evolutionary perspective. Mm. And that's my, my thought on it. I, I want to try to rein in attachment theory to be a little bit more specific and useful than how attached are you to your teacher? Like, I don't think yeah. we're t- using attachment in the right way in that concept. Study but polyamorous relationships. That would be interesting. I don't know if someone's doing that with attachment. I think Justin McGilski, uh, who's a fellow PhD student with me, I think he's included the attachment scale, I recall. I mean, at least when I was in graduate school. Like, how could you even do that if you were anxious? Like, I guess (laughs) eh, maybe some people do. I don't know. That'd be fascinating. I think that's a lot of what they discuss in, from what I've seen, the stick discussions from individuals on Twitter that focus in this area is like a lot of, navigating polyamorous relationships is controlling your own jealousy and like mm. re- like how you mentioned before, reframing those situations mm. in a different way. Um, so yeah, I, I would suspect that people that are highly anxious are not going to be like, yay, this sounds like a great idea for me. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think you probably, that is a good point. You probably have a big selection bias. And it's so this is interesting. I mean, I think that um, I actually don't think I would score that anxious on this scale but I also think, like you're saying, that's probably just because my wife is great and makes me feel secure, you know, and we've been together for like almost seven years now. And like, she just treats me like really well and better than any other partner. So like, maybe, yeah, I definitely, there's been relationships in the past when I've been super anxious, which um, reminds me of a point you made on Xavier's podcast, which is that the correlation between people's attachment styles in different relationships is surprisingly low. Yeah. So by different relationships. Uh, so again, this is Chris Fraley's work. Um, he's one of the, which is something we can get into one of the premises of, a, of attachment theory is like, there should be a correlation between like how you're attached to your parents and then how you end up attached to your romantic partners, which I disagree with. Um, and I think the data supports that conclusion. So when you, do at least in one really big study that they had, um, they asked, they basically did this scale and modified it for like my romantic partner, like mm-hmm. my best friend, my mother, my father. Mm-hmm. So all the same items, but, um, oh, you know, slightly modified okay. and the correlations between those, um, when you fill all those things out at one time are about 0.2, mm-hmm. you know, not, not there, but also not large, but that's mm-hmm. probably not the best measure of it. Mm-hmm. When you actually look at longitudinal studies, um, there's a 2014 meta-analysis and longitudinal study, um, which I think is really well done, included basically three different measures of attachment. So like all the different attachment measures you can think of and studied these individuals over 15 years. When you look at the, whatever you're classified, um, in the strange situation, and then correlate that with, you know, your first relationship when you're 18 or whatever, mm. uh, with your romantic partner, it's a non-significant correlation, which mm. I think is completely unsurprising. I think that's exactly what we would expect, but 
then the counter to that is, well, the, the year to year stability is really high. Therefore it matters. But I'm like, you can have year to year stability that doesn't necessarily imply there's a long-term correlation, which I'm not sure why there's like okay, this so, correlation. So if, so an adult has three or four relationships over a 10 year period, the correlation between their attachment styles in those relationships is likely to be higher than. I would say so, but I don't actually see anyone that's done that study. I think it'd be really hard to follow. Like, but this is the one benefit we have with college students is they tend to have a lot of relationships on average. Um, But I haven't seen, I hope there's research out there, but I haven't seen it where, yeah, like I, like how you were saying your own attachment styles have been different with different partners. So in mine, Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's been any long longitudinal study in adults Mm -hmm. that have had enough time measurements over enough relationships to really have Mm -hmm. good data on that question. But I would say there'd be some correlation, but not, it's not what about my score in different relationships would be different. What about just asking people to like self-report, um, like I could self-report now how I remember being in different relationships. I assume that's been done at least. I haven't seen it. Huh. Maybe it seems like that would be something that's been done. I haven't seen that paper and in all the papers that I've written on attachment, I haven't cited it's anything. Barbara Conner, <laughs> 2022. We got it. Okay. <laughs> just put up a tweet or a Easy study talk. on Twitter. And we'll probably get some data. I'm going to wait. But yeah, I mean, research that... area I know nothing about <laughs> I could see all the criticisms from the reviewers on that already, um, but it would be interesting. Uh, oh, I'm not in academia I, anymore, so I'll just post a blog post. We don't have to. Don't arguing have to with here. reviewers, that's my one academic superpower. Don't worry, I'll deal with it. Okay. Well, this is a good collaboration. Like, like in one of my first pubs, I appealed successfully the uh, rejection. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah it good was, for you. Uh, it was awesome. Love arguing. I took undergrad philosophy. That's. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. This is a good partnership. Yeah. 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 Actually, I was just putting the finishing touches on like a 14 page response letter, which is. Do you want to do my revisory submit that's (laughs) sitting there? After this conversation, you know all my perspectives. So you can probably address the reviewer comments really good. For sure. I mean, (laughs) put my name on the paper. It's just like, for sure. Yeah. I like making plots and I like arguing with reviewers. They're my two two favorite things. All right. I've kept you for a long time. I've learned a lot. I hope my listeners, if if any are still still with us at this point, have have learned some things too. I'm actually um, hoping to have Bill Chopik. Chopik, I don't know. Do you know? Do you know Chopik. Bill? Like Chopik. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hoping to have him on the pod soon. Um, who he he works in the attachment area too. So um, yeah. Hopefully, I can. Learn I think he's done longer. some like longitudinal research with attachment that I, I think I've cited in a paper of mine. I actually, um, when I was in graduate school, he's at Michigan state university and I was at Oakland university, like an hour and a half away. Um, so I actually, he saw one of my only presentations on my full attachment systems theory that I developed in graduate school. So he is one of the few people that I've seen the whole theory laid out. Wait, Oakland's an hour and a half from Michigan. This is not, Oakland University is in Michigan. No, (laughs) I love this. Every conference. Oh, so how's the Bay Area? No idea. I live in Michigan. Um, Yeah, so it's it's in Michigan. It's like north of. It's like by Wayne State University, like thirty miles north. So, yeah. There should only be one Oakland. (laughs) My alma mater would uh, fight you on that. (laughs) (laughs) No, totally. Actually, one thing I really appreciate 
appreciate about American cities is that usually there's only one street with the same name. Like you guys are smart enough not to have multiple streets with the same name. Try you go to Melbourne, it's insane. There's like three Johnson streets. You're going to like put it into Google maps. It's going to take you to the complete wrong side of the city. It's really uh, ridiculous. Anyway. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks again. Sounds great. Right. This is a fun conversation. I love talking about attachment. So thank you for having me. No worries. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll see you on Twitter. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye. Bye.